Section 4 of The Private and Public Life of Abraham Lincoln. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Brandon B. The Private and Public Life of Abraham Lincoln by Orville J. Victor. Chapter 4. As a Merchant, Legislator, and Lawyer. After his return from this campaign, in which, as he is said to have subsequently expressed it, he did not see any live-fighting Indians, but had a good many bloody struggles with the mosquitoes, he looked about for something to do. While thus employed prospecting, he was astonished to learn that it was a proposal among his friends and admirers to nominate him for the legislature. Though he had only been a resident of the county for nine months, an undoubted, intelligent Henry Clay man was required for the ticket, and he was deemed a candidate proper to success. The choice was particularly influenced by the fact that the county had given General Jackson a large majority the year before, whereas it was believed that Lincoln's popularity would now ensure success to the opposite ticket. The nomination was accordingly made. It must have been a proud moment, and one hard to realize, for the young man yet fresh from the woods, when, across a brief interval of retrospect, he could thus contrast his humble life of physical toil with the condition which found him worthy to sit in council beside the statesmen of his new but wealth-gathering and fast-rising state. He accepted the preferred dignity with the gratitude and enthusiasm of youth and hope. The issue, however, was averse to him, he receiving 277 votes out of the 284 cast in New Salem, there being, in all, eight aspirants for the legislative distinction. This was the only time that Mr. Lincoln was ever beaten in a direct issue before the people. We next find him as the purchaser of a store and stock of goods on credit, and officiating as the postmaster of the town in which he resided. He was desirous of studying the law at this time, but was deterred on account of his limited education. He had a partner in his store, but the business soon proving a profitless encumbrance, they sold out. Nothing daunted by his ill fortune, he next endeavored to gain an insight into the profession of lawyer. To this end, he borrowed some books from a friend, and gradually made himself acquainted with the rudiments of the profession in which he has since been so distinguished an actor. He, meantime, pursued his studies diligently. He made himself somewhat proficient in grammar, while his newer opportunities gave the means of far more extensive reading than he had hitherto enjoyed. It was his custom to write out an epitome of every book he read, a process which served to impress the contents more indelibly on his memory, as well as to give him skill in composition. Before he had proceeded very profoundly in his study of the law, 
he became acquainted with John Calhoun, afterward president of the Lecompton, Kansas, Constitutional Convention, who proposed to Lincoln to take up the study and vocation of surveying. Lincoln assented, and immediately commenced the requisite routine of study and practice. He frequently went with Mr. Calhoun to the field, and, in a short time, set up for a surveyor on his own account. In this adventure, fortune was more in his favor than it had yet been. He set to work with his usual industry and vigor, and soon obtained plenty of work. He won quite a reputation in this vocation, and continued in it for more than a year. At the close of this period, in August of 1834, two years after our subject was first a candidate for the legislature, and when he had just entered his 26th year, he was again nominated as a candidate for the legislature of Illinois. The prospect of success was much brighter than before, for Abraham Lincoln had become a very popular man. The first to enlist, and the last to leave, he was thought to have distinguished himself as a military man. He was an excellent surveyor, a tolerable lawyer, in fact, a rising man in the western sense of the term. More than this, he was heartily esteemed for his good sense, greatness of heart, and integrity of soul. These auguries were not fallacious, The day of election arrived, a large vote was polled, and, as had been generally anticipated, Mr. Lincoln was the successful candidate by a handsome majority. In this manner was commenced the political life of the humble and noble man who at length became the recipient of the highest gift of dignity and honor which it is in the power of the American people to bestow. To the legislature of Illinois he accordingly went. It was during the first session that he determined to follow up the study of the law, and he here formed the acquaintance of his colleague, the Honorable John T. Stewart. He was three times re-elected to the legislature, in 1836, 1838, and 1840. What were his particular services it is not necessary to relate. That he labored successfully and acceptably for the interests of his constituents and for the advancement of his state is true. The quick discerning and strong-minded men who generally compose the first settlers of a new country were not to be appeased with the pretense of work. They judged the tree by its fruits, and that Mr. Lincoln was so frequently re-elected proves him to have been true to his old habits of industry and well-doing. It was during his legislative duties that Mr. Lincoln first became acquainted with Stephen A. Douglas. Little did the two men then realize what a position they were, ere long, to assume toward one another and toward their country. Douglas, like Lincoln, was the sole architect of his own fortunes. The good state of Illinois cradled them both in their humble estate, and gave them, as her own, 
to a career of political glory now become historical. He obtained a law license in 1836, removed to Springfield in April 1837, and commenced law practice as a partner of Mr. Stewart. One instance, in connection with his practice of the law, we may relate. A murder having been committed, quote, a young man named Armstrong, a son of the aged couple for whom, many years before, Abraham Lincoln had worked, was charged with the deed. Being arrested and examined, a true bill was found against him, and he was lodged in jail to await his trial. As soon as Mr. Lincoln received intelligence of the affair, he addressed a kind letter to Mrs. Armstrong, stating his anxiety that her son should have a fair trial, and offering, in return for her kindness to him while in adverse circumstances some years before, his services gratuitously. Investigation convinced the volunteer attorney that the young man was the victim of a conspiracy, and he determined to postpone the case until the excitement had subsided. The day of trial, however, finally arrived, and the accuser testified positively that he saw the accused plunge the knife into the heart of the murdered man. He remembered all the circumstances perfectly. The murder was committed about half-past nine o'clock at night, and the moon was shining brightly. Mr. Lincoln reviewed all the testimony carefully, and then proved conclusively that the moon, which the accuser had sworn was shining brightly, did not rise until an hour or more after the murder was committed. Other discrepancies were exposed, and in 30 minutes after the jury retired, they returned with a verdict of not guilty. End of quote. The prisoner and his mother had been awaiting the verdict with agonizing anxiety. No sooner had the most momentous words, not guilty, dropped from the foreman's lips, that the mother swooned in the arms of her son. He raised her and pressed her to his heart with words of glad reassurance. Where is Mr. Lincoln? he exclaimed, and then flew across the room and grasped his deliverer by the hand, with a heart too full for speech. It was sunset time and they were near a window that faced the west. Mr. Lincoln returned the warm grasp of the prisoner, and then cast his glance through the window toward the golden western horizon. It is not yet sundown, said he, tenderly, and you are free. One who was a witness to the impressive scene remarks, I confess that my cheeks were not wholly unwet with tears, and I turned from the affecting scene. As I cast a glance behind, I saw Abraham Lincoln obeying the divine injunction by comforting the widowed and fatherless. Mr. Lincoln continued prospering, devoting the succeeding six years to the study as well as the practice of the law. Each new case seemed to add to his growing reputation for ability as a court and jury lawyer and eminence as counsel. Several of his associates in practice at the Springfield Bar were remarkable men. Says a writer, 
familiar with the persons and incidents of that gathering of great and peculiar men who made the Illinois capital the arena of their combats, it would be hard to find in any backwoods town, at the period of which I have been speaking, a coterie of equal ability and equal possibilities with those who pled and wrangled and electioneered together in Springfield. Logan, one of the finest examples of the purely legal mind that the West has ever produced. Medugal, who afterwards sought El Dorado. Bissell and Shields and Baker, brothers in arms and in council the flower of the Western chivalry, and the brightest examples of Western oratory. Trumbull, then, as now, with a mind preeminently cool, crystalline, sagacious. Douglas, heart of oak and brain of fire, of energy and undaunted courage unparalleled, ambition insatiate and aspiration unsleeping. Lincoln, then, as afterward, thoughtful and honest and brave, conscious of great capabilities and quietly sure of the future, before all his peers in a broad humanity, and in that prophetic life of spirit that saw the triumph of principles then dimly discovered in the contest that was to come. Truly a singular gathering of great souls each one of whom was destined to occupy prominent positions in their country's history. His interest in the exciting and important political events of the day, his steadily increasing conception of their importance not only to his own community but to the country, ere long drew him into the vortex of politics. During the presidential canvass of 1844, he stumped the state of Illinois with unwearying enthusiasm. His admiration of Henry Clay, which had been early imbibed, influenced, in no small degree, the remainder of his life. The antagonism to slavery, in which he was to become such a distinguished mover and champion, was publicly manifested as early as 1837. The legislature of Illinois had, like most of the newer western states, lost no occasion to placate the ruffled feelings of their southern brethren upon the agitation of this subject by the adoption of resolutions of an eminently pro-slavery type, as well as by offering other evidences of sympathy. But, in the session of 1837, when Mr. Lincoln was one of the representatives from Sangamon County, he refused to vote for several of these regularly digested resolutions for the propitiation of the Southern sentiment. And, taking advantage of a constitutional privilege, combined with his colleague from Sangamon in the following protest, which was read to the House March 3, 1837. Resolutions on the subject of domestic slavery having passed both houses of the General Assembly at its present session, the undersigned hereby protest against the passage of the same. They believe that the institution of slavery is founded on both injustice and bad policy, 
but that the promulgation of abolition doctrines tends rather to abate its evils. They believe that the Congress of the United States has no power, under the Constitution, to interfere with the institution of slavery in the different states. They believe the Congress of the United States has the power, under the Constitution, to abolish slavery in the District of Columbia, but that the power ought not to be exercised unless at the request of the people of said district. The difference between these opinions and those contained in the said resolutions is their reason for entering this protest. Dan Stone, A. Lincoln, representatives from the County of Sangamon. In the election of 1844, already referred to, the tariff question being the main subject at issue, Mr. Lincoln's name headed the Whig electoral ticket, as opposed to John Calhoun's on the Democratic side. Calhoun was then regarded as the ablest debater of his party in Illinois. They stumped the state together, usually making speeches, on alternate days, at each place, where they were listened to generally by large audiences. In these speeches, Mr. Lincoln gave evidence of a surprising mastery of the principles, working, and results of the protective system. The canvas proved how thoroughly he had studied the question in all its bearings, how exhaustively he had read history and political economy. He demonstrated not only his own native strength as a debater, but his accomplishments as a well-read student and statesman. He spoke with that directness and precision that are ever most forcible in popular address. His manner was familiar, as if talking to a large circle of friends. A feature of his oratory which became one of his public characteristics. We say oratory, yet it would hardly be termed such in the Ciceronian sense of the word. The very familiarity of his discourse the homeliness of his illustrations, the quiet good humor of his temper, and the seemingly inexhaustible fund of anecdote and story ever ready at his command, all served to divest his speeches of the acknowledged constituents of the oration and to invest them with something of the characteristics of the harangue. Yet, his simple words were weighty with an eloquence which swayed not only the hearts but the judgments of his hearers. And few men ever left an audience under greater weight of obligation for truth spoken and principles enunciated. He came out of that first canvas the conceited champion of the Whig party and policy in the state, and was soon made to assume still more important functions in public life by representing his district in the United States Congress. Note. During this campaign, at a convention held at Vandalia, the old capital of the state of Illinois, an old man carried a banner with this device. Abraham Lincoln, President in 1860. This is a well-attested fact, but what was the prophet's name we have not been able to learn. End of section 4.